Against that backdrop of all that uncertainty with the debt downgrade, the volatile equity markets, the debt ceiling debate we had in early August, I think a two-tenths gain in personal spending is about the best result that you could expect. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today is Friday, September 30th, and that was John Kennelly you heard at the top. He's an economist with LPL Financial. Today on the program, one man's insider account of 30 years in the finance industry. 30 years which led him to pretty stark conclusions about that industry. But first, of course, the Planet Money indicator from you, Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator is 35 The population of Nevada grew by 35% over the past decade. It's one of the little nuggets in the statistical abstract of the United States that the Census Bureau put out this week. It's a lot of fun if you're like us. (laughs) You've been waiting for weeks. (laughs) It came. It came. (laughs) So 35%. This was the highest population growth in the country by far. And, of course, this was both caused by and a cause of Nevada's giant housing boom. You know, people saw Las Vegas booming, so they moved there, so property prices went up. So more people move there. And now, of course, after the bust, Nevada is in huge, huge trouble. It's got the highest unemployment rate in the country. It's got the highest foreclosure rate in the country. And home prices are down 60 percent, six zero percent from the peak of the bubble. It's really driving all of this badness. And and that 35 percent number, that sort of tells this story that the whole nation has been going through, but it's sort of in microcosm, right? So you have all these people who are moving to Nevada. A lot of them are coming to work in construction. A lot of them buy houses. Then the bubble bursts. Not only are they out of work, but all of a sudden, they're also underwater on their houses. So they, they're sort of stuck in Nevada, the place they moved to for the jobs, but now there are no jobs. Exactly. It's very, very grim. All right. So uh, shall we move on to the subject of today's program? We have a conversation with a man who's been on our program before, Shotajit Das. He mercifully asks that we refer to him simply as Das. I'm I'm glad to do that. Das uh, has worked for more than 30 years in the finance industry and in different jobs. He was a banker, a consultant. He worked as a corporate treasurer. And he's written several books about his experience. His newest is called Extreme Money. And Alex, that was the book you, you just talked to him about. Right. And the book is this really entertaining account of his experiences in finance over the years. Like his other book is sort of episodic. He cracks lots of jokes. And it covers everything from art that sells for millions of dollars to complex financial derivatives to entertainingly ranting hedge fund managers. The main thesis, though, is that over the last three or four decades, the idea of finance and even the idea of money itself have been transformed. And it's a transformation that Das just happened to be on hand to witness. I started work in March of 1977, the 7th of March 1977, which is 34-plus years ago. And in an absolute coincidence, and I didn't realize it at the time, and it's only now I look back on it, it was almost coincidentally when money started to get weird, if you like. What it means that money got weird and how and why money got weird, that is the subject of Das's book, and that was the subject of our interview. And his idea is this. Basically, during his career, the world, he says, became increasingly financialized. That is, people who worked in finance, they used to occupy these sort of supporting roles. They matched people who needed to borrow money with people who wanted to lend money, and that was pretty much all they did. But during the years he was in the industry, that changed, and finance became 
much more complicated, and it took more of a central role in the economy and in the world. And so as he and I were talking, we discovered that there was this one period of his career that was sort of a perfect vantage point to see these changes that were taking place. Das worked at a company that owned a 50% stake in an airline company, and he was one of the main sort of finance accounting guys there. And one day his bosses came to him and said, we need our airline company to be more profitable. And I looked at him and said, well, I can give you two roads. One road is you go and try to get more people to fly on your planes, and you basically find new ways to get more revenue and then make sure that you can charge higher fares. And he looked at me and said, it's a very competitive world out there. I can't do that. And I said, I know that. Then he said, well, what's your second plan? I said, the second plan is this. The first thing we do is how we recognize revenue. Because in an airline, what happens is most people pay for their tickets well before flying. So you've got this amount of money coming in. And so what you can do is manipulate how much you recognize as income. Because nobody ever matches precisely the ticket, the amount you pay, to the day you fly. They don't take it into revenue on that day. And we had a formula. So I manipulated the formula for him to say, okay, well, we used to recognize X. In other words, people used to pay this amount of money in. They flew within 60 days. Now, if I make it within 45 days, and he said, do you know they fly within 45? I said, I've got no idea. And I don't want to get into a discussion about that because the facts might go in, get in the way of this argument. So I accelerated that. Then he says, that's good. So I can show more revenue currently. And I said, yep. And he said, what else have you got up your sleeve? I said, look, let's look at the cost side the planes, for instance. We wrote the planes off. We depreciated, as the technical terms goes, assuming a life of 12 years. I said, that's far too short. Let's do it over 20 years. And I'll justify that to the accountants. So these were some of the financial things I was doing. Now, this has absolutely no real-world effect in terms of the business and its profitability, yet I could manipulate those. So the point I'm making is that the entire business became driven by these financial considerations of how we, in the short run, manipulate the numbers. And then we can go to our boards of directors and to our shareholders and say, hey, look, the numbers are looking better. So so that doesn't seem new. Like, it seems like people are always tweaking numbers. People have been tweaking numbers since the beginning of, since the accounting standards were invented, right? Like, isn't that sort of like, that didn't start in the mid-70s, right? Or did it? It actually started, I think, from about the 1960s onwards. Because before that, we had less accounting standards. And one of the perverse things is the less accounting standards you had, the more truth in accounting there seemed to be, which is kind of perverse in this way. And if you actually go back to, and I've actually done this, I've gone back to the late 19th century and the early 20th century, and I had a look at accounts. They're remarkable. The accounts of U.S. Steel and so forth are quite remarkable. They tell you how many units of this they produced, how much they did, and the numbers are not as precise, but they give you a fascinating amount of detail about the business compared to what we get now. But you're absolutely correct. It's not a new phenomenon. What is new is the level at which people looked at that and used that to determine the value of things. And that's part of the financialization process. But also the second part is people now saw finance as a a driver of the business. Previously, they would just tweak it a little bit. Now it became the sole purpose was what the impact on the stock price is. And then, of course, people started to become a bank themselves. Mm -hmm. And that became a part and parcel of the business. So companies like like airlines would start to look at people like you as more and more like if we get a good accounting department we can show better returns and that will increase our that will increase our share price just as much as, you know, making a good plane and flying. Actually, it's business. fascinating because I used to be a banker before I went to work for this company and it was unusual in those days for somebody with a banking and trading background to move into an industrial company. And the reason was the people of the company believed that I could make them money. 
So Jacob Das, during our conversation, said that there was a, a number of ways that he, as a finance person, made his airline company money. One of them was the way he just explained by tweaking the accounting numbers. But also, and more importantly, he said, he took the airline company and, and essentially turned it into a bank. <laughs> and I figured you and I could maybe illustrate this, okay? One of the main ways he did that. You want to help? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right. So Das said this idea of turning the airline company into a bank, it didn't just occur to him. It sort of grew organically based on something that airlines regularly do already. They hedge oil prices. So, all right, to illustrate this, why don't you be an airline and I'm going to be an airline passenger? Okay. All right, I, ready? I, I never really wanted to be an airline, but I, but I can get fired up. Okay. I'm an airline. Welcome. Welcome, Alex Bloomberg. <laughs> Thank you very much. I would like a ticket to fly on your airplane. You got it. It's 100 bucks. Oh, actually, no. I don't, want it. I don't want the ticket for today. I want to fly six months from now. Okay. So I have to say, I mean, I'm glad you like my airline, but you're actually you're creating a major risk, really, for me, a big problem for me, right? Because I'm going to sell you this ticket right now for 100 bucks, And that's basically based on what the price of oil is right now, right? Because price of oil, it's a huge factor in how much it costs me to fly you to Maine, which is, I don't know why you're going to Maine. So sure, if, if the price of oil six months from now is the same as it is now, I'll make a profit on this ticket. But if the price of oil goes up between now and when you fly, I could get totally hosed. I could, in fact, lose money on your ticket because the oil is so expensive. Right. Exactly. And so Das says that this risk, this risk that the oil price will go up in the future and then vanish any profits from, from airline tickets, this was something that he worried about a lot. And he would use this special tool called a hedge to protect against it. Essentially, what this means is he would pay somebody in the financial market somewhere a small fee and in return, that person would guarantee to sell him oil at the current price sometime in the future. Even if the price was much higher than, he would lock in this current price. He's basically hedging his risk. This is a hedge. Right. And here's the thing. A hedge can sometimes be used for protection, but you can also use the hedge to speculate. So, for example, let's say you give me $10 now, and I will guarantee to sell you oil for $100 a barrel six months from now. Got it. So I'm locking in the, the price of oil today. Let's say it's about $100 a barrel. I'm paying you a small fee to promise me that I can buy oil for $100 a barrel at any time for the next six months. Right. Got it. So you're relieved. Great. I can run my business. I can fly you to Maine and make a profit. No problem. Old-fashioned thinking, buddy. Uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> so let's say a month from now, a war breaks out in the Middle East or something like that. The price of oil skyrockets to $150 a barrel. So great. I'm, I'm so psyched that I locked in that hedge because now I can just keep flying my planes, keep getting my $100 a barrel no, no, oil, no, no, no problem. No, 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 See, what you can do is you can turn a profit right now. You could come back to me and say, remember that deal we had? I would like to buy that oil from you now for $100. And then you take it and you sell it for 150 Okay. So I get this windfall right away, right? This difference is the windfall. But then I'm back at risk again, right? I'm not hedged anymore. And if oil's 150 bucks when you want to go to Maine in a few months, then I'm screwed again. Yes, if it's going to be 150 bucks. But what if you think that maybe this was just like a short-term blip, that it went up for 150 but everything's going to blow over, and by the time I'm ready to fly to Maine, it'll be back down to $100. You get your profit now, and you fly me to Maine for a profitable fare. So basically now the airline is just a side business. I'm essentially betting on what the price of oil is going to do. I'm essentially an oil speculator now with, a, with an airline business on the side. And that's what DAS was as well.
So I sit there twiddling my thumbs going, shall I take my profit now or shall I leave it there? Now, in theory, I should leave it there because it's guaranteeing me the price of oil. Except I toss a coin and go, okay, let's take the profit. So we show the profit. If I'm right, later on, I'll be able to buy the oil at a lower price. And that will actually make the airline still profitable. But I've got the additional profit from the hedge. And that's what I started to do, trade, because I could take the hedges off, put them back on. I could buy, I could sell. Now, theoretically, I only should be interested in buying oil. But because I know... Because you're an airplane. Exactly, because I need the oil to fly my plane. It's pretty difficult to fly a plane once it's out of oil, (laughs) as I explained to somebody once. But the point is, if I know something about the oil market and I think the price is going to go down, I could go and sell the oil as well, which is kind of perverse because I actually don't want to sell oil. I don't, I'm not an oil company. I don't produce oil. But I know something about the price. So the entire focus now becomes on the price. And in fact, the more volatile that price is, the more money I can potentially make. And so the whole emphasis changes from what I really should be focusing on, which is getting more people to fly my airplane, developing new routes, trying to find how the most efficient way to run that airline is. I'm now spending all my time focusing on, is the oil price going up or is the oil price going down and how can I profit from it? And in fact, our treasury was a profit center. And in one year, I remember when the rest of the business had gone to hell in a handbasket, we were the single largest contributor to the bottom line. And I remember saying to somebody next to me, you know, all is not right in the state of Denmark when we are the only people in the company making money. This is not a sustainable business model for us. <laughs> when the only when the only division in the in the airline company making money is the accounting division. Basically. Exactly. And yeah. it was kind of perverse because I always thought of my role as supporting the businesses, except here I was now being the major prof- profit contributor. Everybody else thought it was great. And they said, it's remarkable. You've only got 13 people and we've got thousands of people running out there. They don't make no money. So perhaps we should emphasize your business more. I said, I'm not running a bank. I'm running a support function in a company. But those types of arguments fell on deaf ears. And we did exactly the same thing with currencies because we would have revenue in different currencies. Mm -hmm. So we played those same games that we did with oil. I would essentially trade those currencies. And then we even financialized it even further. The company said, we know something about planes. So why don't we actually buy planes and lease them out to other airlines? We set up a separate arm, which was an aircraft leasing company. So what this company would do is go to Boeing or to Airbus and buy planes. They would then have to finance it, so they had to borrow against the collateral of the planes. And then we would use the planes and lease them out to other airlines as part of their fleet. We would be almost like the banker to these airlines, having bought the planes and financed it on their behalf. Right. So you borrow a lot of money at some rate buy the plane, and then you lease the plane out at, you hope, a higher rate. And so that just and so basically you're just covering your spread like a bank does. Exactly. It was sp- exactly what you're saying. We became an aircraft bank. And we could go to Boeing or Airbus and get bulk discounts because we'd say, our airline needs 20 planes, but hey, what the hell? We'll buy 60. But you'll give us a bigger discount. And the whole point of getting that bigger discount was then – we could finance the plane, and we thought we'd be able to finance that plane more cleverly by borrowing against it, and then we would make a bigger spread when we leased it out. So, all right. So, so let's. So, so the financialization. So, so in your position, what what was happening was, all of a sudden, you become the most 
for for a period of time, you were the most profitable center of your airline company, and 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 that's something that was happening. For example, in other companies like GE, for example, was it realized? Wait a minute, we can make more money borrowing certain money, buying machines, and then leasing them out to somebody else. For example, than we than we are just sort of like doing our regular manufacturing business. Um, and uh, and that's happening sort of all around. And that's what you're talking about when you're talking about the financialization. That's one part of it. The second part of it is sort of just simply the rise in the power of the banking and financial industry, right? Talk talk about that a little bit. Where where how did how did you see that happening? I think there's always a feeling that financiers found themselves in the right place at the right time. So financiers suddenly found themselves in the middle of this gigantic change. I don't think they plotted it. Deregulation helped. I think there's a feeling that there was a great conspiracy of people in a smoky room who sat down and plotted this. It didn't happen that way, in my view. What happened was suddenly people were using financial techniques, and there was an absolute avalanche of financial products that were being released. You guys became hot, basically. We became exactly. It was exactly like the internet bubble. We suddenly found ourselves the best-looking men and women at the ball, which was kind of weird because we'd basically grown up being nerds and dull people, and suddenly everybody looked at us and said, hey, these guys are hot, and we went, Jesus, we must be good. And suddenly we started to believe in our own magic. We forgot that this was actually an accident of history. And the other thing which was almost self-reinforcing was the educational system, the system of producing Masters of Business Administration, MBA graduates, all emphasizes financialization as a social good. We were doing great things. So basically, we almost were seduced into believing that we were this great catalyst of this new world that we were actually creating. But the most important thing was we were getting paid a heck of a lot of money to do it. And there is almost an association in the human mind of you get paid a lot to do something, you must be good at it. And I think I... Everybody around me started to believe that. But it was really an illusion. And what we're now finding is it was an illusion. But my God, that illusion lasted for a heck of a lot of time, almost a quarter of a century. And, and you actually felt that. Did you, was, there, was there a time when you thought, like, I am adding value. I am, like, this very important person. I am doing this. Like, you, you, did you, you actually bought it yourself? I think I bought it when I was much younger, so I probably started to feel that I was doing these wonderful things in the early 1980s. But I am by nature an outsider and by instinct skeptical about things. So as I started to learn more and more about this, I started to feel extremely anxious that we were getting decoupled from what we were meant to be doing. And by the early 1990s, I had really reached the point where I realized this was not a very healthy development. So, so, and 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 let's talk about why why this is a bad thing because I think you could sort of so, so looking at like for example the airline business that you were in and and a lot of people would say you know there's a lot of business schools that would teach well that's great you want to okay yeah you want to you as a business you want to explore your core you want to know what your core business is and you want to get good at that but then there's no there's no shame in diversifying there's no shame in looking at other revenue models you do know a lot about you are buying a lot of oil you are you know exposed to a lot of currency you do know a lot about airplanes why not spin off these other businesses and if they become much more profitable go with it you know like why is this different than IBM originally starting to sell computers and then realizing oh wait the real money is in these uh, the punch cards and what's the difference there I think it's a question of degree. 
And the question of degree is the first element, that the more you do that, the more detached you can become from the real business. The second issue, I think, is the more fundamental one, that this entire system gradually became built around two simple axes. One is debt, more debt, and more debt, or taking risks, repackaging them, not really eliminating it, but shifting it around. And you sort of start to see that, and that multiplication of risk in the system that you create when the entire world gets financialized in this way is extremely dangerous. And it goes back to the fundamental point. We were doing this mainly with debt and creating more and more leverage in the system because that was the cheapest way to get these financialized benefits, and that was the danger. And it wasn't only companies. It was individuals doing it and countries doing it. And that's where the danger comes from, not the pure financialization in the strictest sense of the word. You know, I... We did this story about this private equity financier, a, a woman named Lynn Tilton, and she's she's a she's a story in and of herself. But I remember her her basic thing was that she buys these companies that are on the brink of you know failure, and then she comes in and she tries to run them, as opposed to what a lot of ha- people do in private equity, where they just sort of they buy it low and then they make some changes and then they can and then if they can find a buyer to sell it to right away, the, the the goal is to find a buyer buy and flick is the name buy and flick right and she was like I, I i buy and then i just sort of go about it and try to manage them um she was presenting herself as like a that's a, that's a, that's a worthy goal and like sure that is a worthy goal and i remember thinking as she was talking about it though it's also a lot harder if what you can do is make money on a trade, that's easy money, and it's and it's 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 much easier to just take out some debt, buy something, and then if you can sell it for the profit, that's awesome. But Alex, right? you've hit the hit the nail on the head. It was easy. I remember the first big bonus I got in the nineteen eighties. I think it was. It would sorry. It would have been in the middle eighties. And I remember looking at the the check. In those days, people still gave you checks. And I looked at the check and I realized my father as an engineer would have taken 10 years to earn that. And I felt not pride. I felt shame because I could not say that I had built anything because he was a mechanical engineer who built rail carriages and you could see them. I couldn't show him anything. And I remember sitting there and everybody says, why do you look glum? And I said, I look glum because I feel ashamed. And that, that is a tragedy, and, and you're absolutely correct. The, the Lynn Tilson you mentioned is a unique property, and she's the minority. She's not the majority. 99% of private equity would find what she does hard work, and they wouldn't even have the skills to do it, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the KKR principal, Henry Kravis, was asked – or sorry, he was congratulated when he bought a business, and he actually looked at the guy and snarled as he does – don't congratulate me when I buy a business. Congratulate me when I sell it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that summed up to me this difference between a real business and a real business model as distinct from this, these games with money that we play. And there's an interesting thing here where, okay, so let's say the person that you sell it to is also doing that. They're also thinking like, oh, you're selling it too low. We're, we're going to buy it and then we're going we're gonna to flip it also. And if that, if that mentality sort of takes over the, the world in the way it seems to have done, at least or infects the world in a certain way. Is that what you're saying? It is, it is an infection because uh, I'll sum it up very simply to use the phrase the best and the brightest. We, the best and brightest went into finance because A, it was easier. 
B, it paid better than every other profession. So we had this whole generation of people who would have been great scientists, great doctors, great creators of other things, attracted to a business which ultimately only provided, to a substantial degree, toxic waste. And that was the tragedy of our times. And that is actually one of the most, I suppose, damaging things about financialization, because it was this diversion of enormous amounts of talent. So so what do you think? I mean, do, do you... Do you feel like it's over, though? I mean, is that is this is that what you're saying? Like this this has run its course. I think it's going to be very difficult to sustain it because it needs some oxygen. The oxygen of financialization is dead, and if nothing else has happened, the global financial crisis has raised the issue of how much debt is sustainable. I think the world had that eureka moment and went, "We've borrowed all this money. How the hell are we going to pay it back?" And the fact of the matter is, we can't. And so the oxygen or the lifeblood of this process, which is financialization, and also the ability to repackage risk and make it more complex has has gradually shrunk. So I'm not saying financialization will completely disappear, but it's going to lessen its impact. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast as well as other podcasts or just whatever's on your mind. Please contact us at planetmoney at npr.org. You can also visit us on the blog at npr.org slash money. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter and now on Spotify, where we have a Planet Money playlist with all the music from the podcast. We'll have links to all of our social media on the blog. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Well, I give it all back just to do it again.